This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. So God created humanity to dwell with him in the house of the cosmos, and then obviously through, through sin, we're separated from God in the temple, sort of becomes a temporary miniature cosmos hmm. by which he can dwell with people. And this is really the, the great goal and the joy of holiness. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, James Dolezal. James, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jonathan. Thanks. We are uh, glad to be able to have a conversation today with Michael Morales, who is Professor of Biblical Studies at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in South Carolina. Uh, Michael has written on a number of topics related to biblical theology and particularly the Old Testament, but we want to talk to him today about the book of Leviticus, which might be a daunting book for some of our listeners, but he's written a very helpful volume called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, a Biblical Theology of the Book of Leviticus. So, Michael, thanks for joining us today. Thank you both, Jonathan and James, for, for having me. I want to begin just by actually talking about the title because this is from the Psalms, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord, Psalm 15 and Psalm 24. And so how does that relate that phrase from the Psalter? How does that relate to Leviticus, which we, we think of in terms of sacrifices and the tabernacle and the priesthood, but, but you, you frame it in terms of who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord. Yes, to give a little background to that, in God's providence, uh, I was teaching at Knox Theological Seminary working on my dissertation under Gordon Wenham in the UK, and um, so I'm working through a lot of these texts, but at the same time, uh, I was asked to teach a class on Reformed worship uh, for these MDiv students, and uh, I really wanted to be as biblical uh, as possible, uh, bring the students into the text and, and see why, where we derive our convictions on things like the regular principle, etc. But I landed just on those Psalms, Psalm 15 and Psalm 24, and really explored that and the whole gate liturgy idea behind it. And again, in God's providence, with that sort of paradigm in mind, then I came to my dissertation studies and really began to see how that question is in many ways underlying a lot of the narratives throughout the Pentateuch and certainly in the book of Leviticus. And so how it relates to Leviticus more particularly relates to the uh, analogy, if you will, between the tabernacle and later temple and the mountain of God. And so originally uh, we see this uh, early on, uh, Exodus 19 through 24 especially, the uh, Israelites approached God in worship at the mountain and as you'll see in most of your commentaries in the book of Exodus, uh, the tabernacle was in a way meant to take Mount Sinai with you. And so the tabernacle, even though we, we kind of look at it horizontally, if uh, it's actually it corresponds to the mountain of God. So the Holy of Holies corresponds mm -hmm. to the summit of Mount Sinai. Only Moses could ascend to the summit, whereas the high priest takes that role in the tabernacle. Then the holy place uh, would be comparable to the central section of the mountain and then the people at the foot of the mountain, the people in the, the courtyard area. And so once you see that analogy in place, which, by the way, is, uh, was a commonplace in the ancient Near East, not, not just with Israel, 
then a lot of the rituals start to open up. Uh, whenever the high priest enters into the tabernacle, he's actually ascending this architectural mountain of God, approaching God. And so he's, for example, representing the people to Yahweh. When he's coming out of the tabernacle, he's descending and representing Yahweh to the people. And so that's sort of a, a brief sketch. Um, but it also, the question, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord? I think is the great question that, again, is underlying and, and being asked uh, time and again, and it's basically the gospel question, who is able to approach his presence? And so in the old covenant, we see that it was through the mediation of the high priest in the new covenant. That high priest, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Michael, I think that's helpful to, to see that analogy, even as scripture often talks about the holy places being high places, or Ezekiel talks about the mountain sanctuaries uh, of the Lord. Maybe sometimes we wonder, how is a, how is a tent traveling through a wilderness uh, a mountain? But as you say, they take the mountain with them. Bring, bringing, that to, bringing that to bear then on the message of Leviticus, I think speaking for most Christians familiar with the book at all, we probably instinctively think to ourselves, the theme of the book of Leviticus is holiness. I don't think you use the word holiness in the title of your book, and yet that is in fact a, a good part of what this is about, this ascending the mountain of the Lord. I was thinking even of the passage in Hebrews that without holiness, uh, no man will see the Lord. Um, maybe you could speak then to how, how that comes to bear on, on sort of framing the message of the book uh, more than just a collection of, you know, sometimes sundry laws regarding priests, but what really thematically pulls that together? Right. I think the dwelling with the Lord theme. So God created humanity to dwell with him in the house of the cosmos. Uh, and then obviously through, through sin, we're separated from God and the temple sort of becomes a temporary miniature cosmos hmm. by which uh, he can dwell with people. And this is really the, the great goal and the joy of holiness. It's more of God and God gets more of us. And so the way that I divide the book of Leviticus is in three major chunks. The, the first part is approaching the house of God, that's chapters 1 through 10, and then uh, cleansing the house of God, chapter 11 through 16. But then the third and, and sort of final and climactic section uh, really is all about holiness, but I've titled it Meeting with God at the House of God. And uh, all of the laws there set forth the reality that God is dwelling among his people. He wants closer intimacy and fellowship and communion with them. And so they are called to holiness. And this is where you really find all of the, the language there. Be holy as, as I am holy. And so there's a goal to our holiness. Um, we're being conformed uh, to Christ, uh, not just because that's the thing to do, but because we're in this relationship with God. Really, it's it's the love of God that drives us to him. It's his love for us that, that pulls us to him. And so that third section, I have a lot about meeting with God and dwelling with God, but it's, that's really the whole context for uh, the laws on, on holiness and, and the urgency to pursue holiness. I'm thinking of, you used an expression there, uh, framing that, that uh, your comments about the joy of holiness and and yet, uh, you sometimes, perhaps superficially, we might read through the book of Leviticus or other, uh, especially um, 
hortatory, exhorting passages in Scripture, uh, instructing us on how to live, and we think that they're not joyful. And I was thinking of, uh, you made me think of Hebrews 12, where he speaks about um, that God disciplines us, that we may share his holiness— and then he he uses this word that you used, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But those who've been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Um, that, the, that the end of this isn't just dutiful conformity, but it is in fact, I think as you're saying, joyful dwelling. Right, right. I mean, it, if God and humanity are going to have fellowship and communion, what needs to change? What what needs to happen for the two veils of the tabernacle to be pushed aside and for us to be face-to-face, as it were? And obviously, God cannot change. So, we need to change. And that's, that's the whole program of the Sabbath day and sanctification is to sanctify Israel that they may have this more intimate fellowship with the Lord. I try to point it out in the book. There's these grades or levels of holiness to the high priest is holier than the rest of the priests. They're holier than the Levites. Levites are holier than the sons of Israel or all the Israelites, and they are called to be a holy nation. Hmm. But there's these gradations because there's there's always something before us to pursue. And hmm. the priests, as it were, are uh, the examples for the calling of, of all of God's people. And as you know, the Levites represent the firstborn, which represents the whole household. And so there's there's this spectrum where it's not stagnant. It's God's people are called to pursue holiness. Another thing that I found um, is, and maybe we just need to do a better job as pastors and teachers, uh, there's a very negative view of holiness. And likely that comes from all of the threats uh, that uh, are entailed with holiness. But nevertheless, in the Hebrew mindset, holiness is it's almost synonymous with absolute life. Hmm. Uh, so if you think about paradise, the Garden of Eden, which is the original Holy of Holies, it's we have this beautiful picture of um, you know the river of abundance, fructifying everything, uh, trees hmm. bearing fruit everywhere. It's it's this beauty, and the same thing with the decor of Solomon's Temple and uh, the Holy of Holies. Uh, you know the, the the palm trees and pomegranates and all of the decor is meant to show us the reason why we can't approach God. Yes, because he's holy and we're not, but that's related. And I explained this in the, the second chapter on Leviticus related to the, the cleansing and uh, clean, unclean laws is holiness is tied to life and lack of holiness is tied to death. And it's only because we're in the kingdom of death and we're subject to death that we can't approach God because he's absolute life and life. Uh, will always obliterate death. Life always wins. And so, I think if we can understand coming to God, the fountain of life, this is what makes them so utterly holy. He's absolute life. And, you know, as we read in the scriptures, the wages of sin is death. Um, so, it's not just, uh, as we we're saying before, some sort of strict moral code, um, but it's life and death. And our hearts deceive us, and we think that fulfilling our desires will lead to life, but it always leads to death. And holiness, that really is the source of, of life. Michael, when you read through Leviticus or teach through Leviticus, uh, 
notwithstanding the fact that we can learn all these important truths about who God is and about the function of holiness and all these things, to what extent do you see it as a kind of uh, bad news version of what Paul says in Ephesians, now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ? In other words, does it function for us today as a, as a kind of flip side of, of that truth, uh, the bad news before we get the good news, so to speak, the distance that now has been uh, bridged? Or would you articulate real good news in the actual context of Leviticus. I see the gospel in Leviticus. I see the good news there. Um, there's always need to be nuance because uh, in referring to the book of Hebrews, we're not really going from bad to good, but we're going from good, even really good mm -hmm. to better and to, and to much more excellent. Uh, but just to give an example of in the first section of Leviticus, uh, where I think the heart of the gospel really is. Uh, so I try to explain that there's, there's this dramatic movement. And once you understand what the book is doing, then you can appreciate. We often just get lost in the trees and miss the forest. So for the first section of Leviticus, which is Leviticus uh, 1 through 10, uh, the forest, as it were, is begins with Exodus 40. So God fills the tabernacle with his glory, but we see that Moses can't enter it. And the language is very specific. It says he can't enter the tent of meeting. So with the glory of God, this house has become his dwelling place, but it hasn't yet become a meeting place between God and Israel. If Moses can't enter, I mean, the one man who's allowed to the summit of Mount Sinai, the question is who, who can? And so that's the cliffhanger with which the book of Exodus ends. And that leads to that question, who shall ascend? Who can approach the presence of this holy God. He has now descended to earth, but he's utterly holy. And if we jump to the end of that first section, Leviticus 9 and 10, we find in Leviticus 9, the inaugural worship ceremony at the tabernacle. And we read there near the end of chapter 9 that Moses and Aaron enter the tent of meeting. And so the question then becomes, how do we get from the crisis of Exodus 40 to um the tabernacle becoming a tent of meeting that Moses and Aaron can enter it at Leviticus 9 and 10. And the answer, part of the way that the, the narrative is structured is the law set in between. So we find in Leviticus 1 through 7, there's the sacrificial laws. Then in Leviticus 8, we find the ordination, the consecration of Aaron and his sons as a priesthood. And so the answer, when we see that the sort of the, the great... Um, chasm between God and humanity. How can this chasm be bridged? The answer is through God-ordained sacrifices offered by his ordained priest. And that's the gospel. How can any man, woman, child today be reconciled to God? How can the bridge be chasmed? Well, we need the sacrifice that God requires offered by the man he has chosen to offer that sacrifice. And so right there, in just the beginning of Leviticus, we see this beautiful gospel truth. I mean, the blood of sacrifices there, it's, it's all there to be you know, fulfilled with uh, more vivid colors in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an interesting, I, I love how you bring it up to, to Leviticus 9, where they do ascend and then the, the fire comes forth and, cons, and consumes the offering and shows uh, 
God's approbation and meeting with his people. Uh, and then before he gets into further sort of rules about how to bring the sacrifice, there's that interesting account of Aaron's sons. And fire comes out again from the Lord and consumes them. And it's a matter of, uh, it's a matter of ascending the mountain of the Lord is something that, that again, reinforces the, the need for the holiness of the priests and the offerings that they bring. That's right. Uh, I think it's a reminder of God has opened a way uh, for earth and heaven to communicate, uh, but it's a very dangerous way. Hmm. And it doesn't mean that once it's opened, anything goes nilly-willy. And I think that's the function of that brief story there, chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. In, in many ways, it's a reverse mirror of chapter 9. Uh, chapter 9, the worship ends with the people shouting, falling on their face. Chapter 10, it ends with Aaron shutting his mouth. He's silent. Um, in both cases, as you mentioned, the fire of God uh, comes out and consumes. On the one hand, it's the substitute sacrifices. and the other, it's those who approached him in an unlawful manner. So there's all sorts of comparisons to show us they go together as a complete picture. Um, mm. and, and that's what makes it... Um, complete is that we see not only the positive, but then we're warned that there is a, a wrong way to approach God. You're calling it dangerous makes me think of, uh, of 16.2, where uh, Moses tells Aaron not to enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat, which is on the ark, or he will die, uh, for I will appear in the cloud over the ark. And I I've always thought it is a strange kind of irony, perhaps, and one that is most effectively revealed in the gospel of um, the place of mercy is also potentially very deadly uh, if we come there the wrong way. That's right. And, and it also emphasizes uh, the notion of time, which probably of all the sacred categories of space status, uh, time is the one that we as Westerners are most unfamiliar with. In the Reformed tradition, we still hold on to uh, Sabbath day, but you know, he says, don't come at, at just any time. Hmm. And that's significant. It actually is going to foreshadow the third section of Leviticus, chapter 17 to 27, which is all about the sacred times. This is where God unveils uh, the great feast days. And, and so the book ends with this image of all the tribes journeying to the place that God has chosen to, to celebrate in his presence. Michael, we're just scratching the surface here. It's it's always this way when we come to God's word, but I think we, we both feel it really acutely today, but I, we really appreciate your time with us. I wish we had more time. Thanks for, thanks for talking to us about your book, but thanks most of all for talking to us about the book of Leviticus. Uh, it's been a joy. Thanks for having me. So James, this is certainly a book that we want to commend to our uh, listeners, but it's it, it, we want to in in the interest of truth and advertising. It's it's not a commentary on Leviticus. It's not the kind of thing where if you're a pastor preparing to preach through Leviticus, you'll you'll pull it off your shelf and kind of reference chapter by chapter. But it is a kind of preparatory book because it gives an overall theology of the big picture and the big themes of the book of Leviticus. And I think that's incredibly valuable. Right. And while the index is certainly going to make it useful when you're in sort of down into the weeds of the particular passage, um, looking, pulling it together thematically really, really makes the argument that this thing is something to to really get into your marrow yeah. uh, before you get into the more granular exegesis to really have a good sense of 
why and unto what uh, yeah. all of this is going on. I think in a book like this, it's the kind of thing that if some pastors have the leisure of a study leave before they begin a new series, others do not. But in, in either case, it would be helpful uh, if pastors could carve out the time to really to really own this material uh, before they begin to march through it in a series of expositions. Yeah, and that would be true as well if you're just interested in studying Leviticus. Sometimes people in their in their personal devotions want to tackle different books, and, and sometimes they'll say, well, I've never really gotten into Leviticus. It seems sort of daunting. And I think this would be a great way to, to prepare for that. I always find personally when I am starting a new sermon series, I like to get those big picture things in my, as you said, in your marrow of your bones before you jump into the textual stuff. And what you don't want to do is just is do all your preparatory work on um, date and authorship and textual fragment. I mean, that, that all has its place, but there's, but in terms of preaching and proclamation, the message of the book, you really want to know it before you begin. I mean, how, how many of us, I'll include myself, have gotten into a series of expositions on a book only to find that the theme all along was actually something that we didn't quite see when we set out. And if, if somebody could help you with that on the front end, I think of other books like this, like, uh, called a commitment, uh, William Lane's uh, little book on, on Hebrews, Hebrews yeah. or even the one you know that I like by Brian Estelle on Jonah, uh, where there's where they're really just a big broad thematic overview before you get into the details. It's really going to help give you the direction that you really want on the front end as you charge through some expositions. Yeah, so the book again is Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord, A Biblical Theology of the Book of Leviticus by Michael Morales. And for those of you who are listening who might be interested in this book, we'd like to give you the opportunity to win a copy of it. You can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, and there'll be a a place for you to enter your name and information there. Uh, We thank you for listening as always. We love hearing from you. We love when you recommend this podcast to other people that you think might be helped by it. And if you're able to donate, we appreciate that very much. Uh, You can go to alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org, and both those sites have a button that you can click to donate, and it's fairly straightforward from there. But thank you, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.